The CNBC app, global market news in one place. Customizable sections and personalized alerts. Stocks tracking, interactive charts and market insights all in your hands. Stay connected, stay informed. Download the CNBC app today. A very warm welcome to Scorebox with myself and Karen Cho. Very busy day, lots of corporates on both sides of the Atlantic. So let's get into the headlines. Alphabet soaring as the Google parent posts a big beat in the fourth quarter and announces a 20 for one stock split. There was uh, broad-based uh, broad advertiser strength. There was strong consumer online activity and those were really the primary drivers. Santander reporting a fourth quarter net profit of over 2 billion euros driven by strong customer growth, whilst provisions at the Spanish lender fall 30%, 37%. The executive chairman, Anna Botin, will join us at 8.45 CET. A slew of private equity groups weigh up bids for Novartis's generic drugs unit Sandos as the Swiss pharma giant considers its options. We're going to be speaking to the CEO, Vasner Simon later on today at 8.20 CET. Meantime, we're live in Kiev today as the standoff over Ukraine shows no sign of easing, while Russian President Vladimir Putin says the West has ignored his key security demands. They said one thing and did another thing. As people say, they played us, they simply lied. Okay, that's fine. Well, look, when we speak to Baz Narasimhan later on this morning, of course, we're going to be speaking about Sandoz. It's a story which he knows that uh, is going to be uh, very much on the minds of shareholders and uh, what they are going to do with the money from that uh, if they do sell it or, or if they decide to go for a spin-off as well. In the meantime, the existing business, well, there's a lot in here, so let me just go through it and maybe Karen and I will have a little chat about it. Uh, they've delivered mid-single-digit sales growth, margin expansion and advancement of robust pipeline in 2021. That is the headline that they've put at the top of their release. The fourth quarter sales grew 6%. Uh, constant currencies, it looks like up 4% in US dollars, and core operating income grew 12%. That's 9% in US dollars as well. Operating income grew 13%, mainly due to higher sales and productivity, and benefiting from lower legal expenses. Uh, elsewhere, they see fully in net sales grew 4%, as I say there. Uh, the strong innovative medicines performance there uh, within that. They're proposing a dividend of 3.1 Swissy per share. That is an increase of 3.3%. 2022 guidance uh, on group sales and core operating income expected to grow mid-single digits. So that's the, 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 the broad blush there. They're talking about a robust pipeline in 2021. But the problem for Vaz Narasimhan, let's break this out a little bit and speak to Karen as well on this one as well, um, is that the shares, Karen, are exactly where they were pre-pandemic. They're exactly where they were almost to the Swiss franc uh, in February 2019. And that doesn't necessarily signal progress from a shareholder point of view. And that is a great graphic, actually, we put out there. Thank you, team, uh, on the five-year performance. Karen. 
Yeah, it's a difficult one, isn't it, as you take a look at the pharma sector, because the market very much rushed into some of the big vaccine plays around COVID. And Novartis was very much still focused on other areas, playing a, a more of a minor role when it comes to the, the vaccine story. So I think you've had a roller coaster, though, for the overall sector. And as we know, there's been a lot of ETF trading around baskets of stocks. So I think it's been a very difficult one trying to get a handle on Novartis and its numbers. But I think we've started to move past that now in this part of the pandemic when investors are now looking at other opportunities, and that is other opportunities in pharma away from just vaccine development and a diagnostics. So I think this will be interesting to see what plays out over the course of this year, whether Vasner Simon can conduct that or convey that message a little bit stronger over the course of this year away from the pandemic noise. I think that's going to be quite key when it comes to the business. Yeah, all of the above, Karen. And, and look, Vaz, he, he takes it on the chin and, he's, and he'll take all our questions later on as well. What I am doing here is just running the slide rule over this company compared with peers, both in Switzerland uh, and indeed in the United States. And, and just for our viewers' interest as well, I mentioned, as we showed that great chart just now, that the shares are pretty much where they were to the dime. Um, and that's a great chart as well. That is showing you the progress. What a good chart. Thank you, team. I didn't even know you were going to do that. That shows the progress uh, you can see uh, in some of their peer groups as well. And Roche uh, is very much uh, a standout performer to the upside. Uh, Pfizer on the other side of the Atlantic, you might want to look at that one as well. Again, a stock which in February 2019, which is the period I'm talking about here, was trading around about $40, uh, $40 per share, now trading 53 uh, Novartis, as I say, pretty much where it was. Uh, Roche is a very interesting one. Roche that was trading in February uh, 2019 at circa, and I'll just get you the exact figure, uh, 272 Swissy, now trading at 359. So I'm afraid some peers have pulled away. And that is why uh, several private equity firms are reportedly circling Novartis' generic drugs unit, Sandoz. Uh, and Sandoz, I can just tell you, the sales, they're up 2% constant, uh, constant currency, 0% uh, in US dollars. That perhaps speaks to why Sandoz might well be on the block. Uh, bids from private equity apparently worth up to $25 billion. Interested parties are believed to include Blackstone, Carlyle, Sweden's EQT, and a consortium of Advent International, Hellman and Friedman and KKR. Now, Novartis, of course, flagged in October that it was considering a potential divestment amid similar moves from other pharma giants. And as Karen and I have been pointing out, for more on Novartis' earnings and perhaps the future of Sandoz, we shall speak to the CEO, Vaz Narasimhan, this morning at 8.20 Central European time. But what I think is fascinating is a company that's doing really, really well in the finance sector, Karen, but is now going to perhaps face more intense competition because of the news we had out from the likes of uh, uh, Ralph Hammers yesterday over at UBS. Yeah, it's a fascinating one. There's a couple of big themes here. And just to link it to Novartis, actually, Julius Baer, I think all of these CEOs are having to look at businesses that are underperforming, whether they're just growing or whether the performance is flat. It's not enough. And you are seeing some moves to divest and sell off certain businesses. You saw it in Sandos, the news there with the private equity firms from Novartis. And you saw it at the start of this year around uh, Vergen and Partner. This is uh, a business that uh, Julius Baer bought only five years ago, 2017 and management is now buying it up. They think they can do a better job with it. And it's fascinating because that set the scene for a bunch of M&A in the sector, different type of M&A that maybe the market had not thought about, newly purchased assets that are not performing, not older ones, legacy ones, but newly purchased ones. And I think that was a, a fascinating one that Julius Baer will be quizzed about over the course of today on the investor call. But let's get to the numbers. You've seen a significant increase in net profit, 
This is the full year numbers crossing. Uh, dividend payouts increased as well. The new share buy buyback program of up to 400 million Swissy. So the net pro profit attributable to shareholders is up 55% to 1.08 billion. This is uh, net fresh earnings per share increase of 56% to 5.06. Swissy adjusted net profit up 20%. Assets under management have grown there at 482 billion. Swissy an increase of 11%. What's been crucial here, you may recall at the end of last year, the company was warning about lower client activity that had been sort of grinding south over the course of the year. And again, this is something that relates to the UBS story that Steve just mentioned, what that activity looks like this year. But they say that uh, that final quarter, they were supported by net new money up 30% to 20 billion Swissy. So the end of last year, it was strong and perhaps it was sort of evident in the Santa Claus rally that we saw in markets that there was a lot taking place on equities in particular. Uh, and I think bond markets, we've seen a lot of rotation there as well around this yield curve adjustment story. So there's been very active uh, client base money coming in off the sidelines. The question is whether it continues over the course of this year. That's been the big, uh, I guess, area of doubt for some of these uh, stocks reporting. When it comes to capital efficient business model, they're saying that further helped improve capital ratios. BIS CT1 capital ratio at 16.4% and uh, the BIS total capital ratio at 24%. So uh, the company is uh, performing on a number of these different metrics and that dividend increased to around 50% of adjusted net profit with an ordinary dividend of a 2.60 Swissy per share proposed for 2021 that is up 49% year over year. But we will continue that conversation and dig into the numbers a little bit more with the Julius Baer CEO, Philip Rickenbacker, who will join us later on to flesh out the results. The interview is coming up at 8.05 CET and a first on CNBC. Well, Santander has reported fourth quarter net profit over 2 billion euros as the Spanish lender cut its provisions by 37%. The bank also saw strong customer growth, adding over 5 million new clients. Underlying profit in Santander's European and North American units more than doubled compared to the previous year. And the Santander Executive Chairman Anna Bottin will join us at 8.45 CET to discuss the state of affairs over at Santander. Steve. Yeah, Karen, Rod's trying to get me to the wall. That's the director for our view, but I'm not going yet because I want to say two things. <laughs> One, uh, the reason why this time yesterday I was banging on about the cost-income ratio over at UBS. And I know they've got all those expensive investment bankers that Santander doesn't have, but this is fascinating. The cost-to-income ratio over at Santander is 40 5%. And yet their return on tangible equity is stratospheric today. So then you have to think about your business model, don't you? If you're one of these big investment banks that has a, uh, a cost income ratio uh, and you're proud of something in the low 70s when you dispute the fact that it's in the 80s. Well, the fact of the matter is, if you've got more old boring banking such as Santander of a 45% cost to income ratio, but you're targeting a return on tangible equity in North America of 20%, in South America of 25%, in Europe above 12%, don't you, as a banker in the investment banking space, have to think about your business model? Karen, do you want to come in on that one? I'll just leave that hanging for the viewers. Yeah, I was just going to say that, well, neither bank has to worry about paying Andre or sell now, do they? <laughs> so uh, you can't blame him for the increase in the cost income ratio in either bank uh, by way of financial jokes. But uh, I think they're very different business models, though. And, you know, UBS put it down to increased business, which is why they're paying more compensation. So I think we need to just dig a little bit further. Perhaps Anna Botin has some answers, too, when it comes to this. Uh, and uh, the numbers minus the litigation that UBS had flagged as well. No, no, I hear you. But but if you can't, I mean, if you're producing, and I'll, I'll 
wall to the wall at the time. Rod will be happy about that. But 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 if you're producing, and I know that they're very different business models, there will be financial analysts out there who are wringing their hands what I'm saying at the moment because the investment banking model is very different between the consumer uh, and business retail banking facing operation as well. But if you're producing rote of those kind of numbers, and we'll talk to Anna Bottin, as you say, about that later on as well. Why bother with the investment banking in some ways? And that's a decision that many European banks have made over the last 20 years, have decided we can't compete with the cost base in the United States. We can't compete with the dynamism of that economy, with the fact that they get better NIMS, of course, because they have higher interest rates because of that dynamism. Why bother? Sorry, I'm just chucking it out there. If your cost income ratio is, and you're proud of something above 70%, as opposed to the lower figures in the States as well, why are you bothering if you wrote, it can be big double digits, without doing all that, without the risks that entails, without the capital which it eats up? It's an existential question, perhaps not one not for this part of the show. Okay, let's have a look. Okay, Rod, I'm here. So this is the, uh, the US markets from yesterday. Look, you're getting solid earnings, you're getting mixed to good data as well. The problem is, the problem is, I mean, yes, look, 78% of companies are beating on their estimates at the moment. Big surprise. Kel surprise. We get this every single time. Call it low uh, and beat as well. But the problem is, and I know Karen's going to spend a lot more time on the data a little bit later on. When the Treasury is, and we'll move to this now, when the Treasury is on the 10-year, uh, is tipping over 1.8 at one point as well, then some of those companies are going to start to think, oh, are we going to have a, a, an assault on 1.9, 2% as well? Because the fact of the matter is, some of that data out there, is extraordinary. You know I love the jolts data. I know Karen's going to do it a little bit later on. I've seen the read further on. I just want to remind you that according to jolts, job openings and labour market turnover survey, and this is for all you transitories out there who are still there. We know you're there. You're just under a rock. Uh, 10.9 million job openings in the United States. The average in 2019, when the economy was on all cylinders, when we didn't have the largesse from the Federal Reserve, the average for the whole of 2019 was 7.2 million. It's 10.9 now. Still 4.3 million people decided they can quit as well, which is off the top, but still enormous as well. Considering the number of people who are supposed to be unemployed in the States and actively searching for jobs, that is a big figure, that 10.9. Don't take my word for it. Look at the jolts. Uh, anyway, that's the treasuries. Let's move on and take a look at the banks. We've got ADP today. We've got payroll on Friday. There's lots going on. So Goldman's was a big factor. Goldman's uh, took the Dow up uh, 62 points on its own as well. Uh, Morgan Stanley, 1.4. And again, the, the, the line here is all oh, with the, the treasuries uh, on the 10-year, moving up to 1.8 and beyond. Potentially, uh, that is good, of course, for the US banks. But the numbers are great, by and large, out of this sector as well. US tech as well, the NASDAQ continuing its rally. Um, again, the news around Alphabet, we'll spend a bit more time on that now. Absolutely fascinating as well. Google is just a machine in terms of advertising, in terms of cloud as well. But again, we'll come to that in a few moments' time with Karen, Arjun, and our guests as well. US futures, what do they look like? I haven't even seen them. There you go. I haven't even seen them before you today, uh, old viewing public. Uh, so we're called up, NASDAQ called up. Look at that, 175. I wonder if that's something to do with Karen's next read. Let's get to Alphabet, Steve, which beat on the top and bottom line in the fourth quarter, with revenue soaring 32% to a record $75.3 billion. Google's annual advertising revenues topped $200 billion for the first time, with retailers splurging on ads as pandemic pressures eased. 
Alphabet also announced a 24-1 stock split to take place in July. That could make it possible for Alphabet to be added to the price-weighted Dow Jones Industrial Average. And let's get out to Arjun for more. Arjun, two very big themes here, the stock split and the performance in the advertising business that propelled Alphabet into the end of the last quarter. Just give us a sense of what these elements mean for the stock price when we've seen technology battered in recent weeks. That's right, Garen. I mean, look, the big theme coming into tech earnings this season was can these companies continue to grow given the growth we've seen during the pandemic or will there be a slowdown as things start to normalize? And we got it first with Apple and Microsoft last week, both beating earnings, both strong results. And now we're seeing it with Alphabet on a beat on the top and bottom line revenue up 32 uh, percent year on year, alleviating some of those fears around a slowdown. And just to dig into where Alphabet seeing strength specifically, firstly, in, of course, that advertising revenue continues to grow, search business driven very much by the retail sector, which is interesting because Google is luring a lot of these retailers onto its shopping platform, getting those retailers to advertise it through search as well. And you're seeing that payoff as more and more businesses look to digitize, look towards digital advertising as well, a theme that really picked up during the pandemic. Now, cloud computing, another big focus uh, for the market, always with Google. That grew 45%, roughly in line with what we've seen from Microsoft uh, as well. The loss was about 890 million in the quarter. Now, that was narrower than last year, but of course, investors at this point accepting the loss for the cloud business, given the fact that Google is trying to catch up with the likes of Amazon and Microsoft. And many investors see this as a key growth area for the company going forward. YouTube really was the only segment that missed on expectations. You're seeing the effect there from Apple's move to limit ad targeting on its devices coming through for YouTube. But overall, very uh, strong support uh, report card there. The stock split was fascinating as well. 24-1 stock split as well. We're seeing Alphabet's uh, share price uh, at Tuesday, especially in after hours with that big pop, touching uh, 3,000 USDs. So that stock split really about trying to get more investors involved in this. But overall, if you look at what we're seeing from uh, Google is that trend in digitization, more and more businesses looking to cloud computing, digital advertising continues despite uh, the pandemic sort of moving on at this point. And that's something that Alphabet really can take advantage of with its cloud business, with its uh, advertising business. And you're seeing some of the read through there to companies like Amazon and Facebook and after hours trade as well with those company shares higher. Guys, back to you. Arjun, thank you very much. Uh, let's get to John Blank, who is a Chief Equity Strategist at Zaxx Investment Research. John, let's start with the earnings first up. Uh, I want to get into the revenue numbers. The market was a little bit downbeat, thinking that would get past these pandemic trends and revenue would start to normalise roughly around that 17% mark. But yet we closed out the year with 32% pop. How strong is the advertising base? And do you think the market was a little bit wrong by being too cautious or, or too pessimistic about a reversion on the numbers? It's a good question. Uh, there's one thing, number, earnings surprise number that I was uh, attracted to when I was thinking through the data that came out. And the first thing I'll tell you is that the average of the last four surprises from earnings was 40%. The last earnings surprise before this quarter, the third quarter, was 20%. And the surprise from earnings this time around was 15%. And you put that in, in, into context with the 4% beat on the revenues. And it does suggest that there is a very stable deceleration into some kind of endemic era as opposed to a pandemic era. Uh, the only thing I, I would put a note of caution, I think we're all kind of 
jumping the gun on getting out of the pandemic. Obviously, the Omicron variant is playing a huge role right now out here. And the first quarter numbers are probably going to be more pandemic area than ever. So I think that's the other thing here is we're just learning that the pandemic dragged on. And I, I expect Google will have a strong first quarter because, again, we've had so much Omicron uh, caseloads out here. So it's, it's kind of like when I listen to the news or read it, I kind of think we're we're probably six months ahead of where, where you know, the state of the affairs over here really is. John, as we uh, take stock of the uh, stock split, uh, I thought it was a fascinating one, almost as though Alphabet wants to get its eyes further into uh, the eyesight of those international institutional investors and also retail investors by trying to bring down the price, which means it could be included in various indices, but also more attractive to the retail crowd. Absolutely. I mean, what you want to do here, you get down to $150 share price. That's the average you know, Dow price is 177 So what they're trying to do is become average. The other thing I think they're trying to do here is get themselves out of the eyes of the regulators a little bit. I mean, you have a $3,000 share price. That's so, that's so, the optics are terrible there. So you get into the 150s, you get a much more attractive uh, Dow industrial kind of uh, placement for your stock. And I also think you create a, a kind of, conundrum for the regulators because they say, oh, you're so big, you're so powerful, but you're also ho holding the stock market up. And stock market wealth in the United States, you know, the, the full market capitalization in the United States is like 55 trillion. This particular stock will be two. This will be 4% of the entire U.S. stock market, everything. And then you throw, you know, the Microsofts, the Amazons, all their competitors in there. Uh, it's just astonishing to realize the stability the stock provides to the stock market and you know exiting the pandemic when you start to include this idea that you know what's really happening here with the stock split is is google has become really a top 20 you know core component of the united states economy world economy and and such a core part of the the uh, market capitalization of the united states stock market that it's just i mean it's undeniable and that's what basically what the stock split says Hang on, John. You, you, you said a couple of very interesting things there. One, are, are, and these are my questions, not yours. One, are policymakers, I beg your pardon, uh, regulators and lawmakers in the Justice Department so stupid that they will see a $2 trillion company as anything other than a $2 trillion company, regardless of a stock split? Uh, and two, are you saying that they would pull their punches in terms of regulation and going after this company because they'd be terrified about what it would do to the US consumer, to the US stock market, if indeed they were to chase down, if they believed there was some form of mo monopolistic behavior? Well, this is the question. I mean, you know, the, the big risk to the outlook is this uh, litigation on, on their dominance. I mean, 95% uh, market share in mobile, 75% desktop. But the problem here is you, you say to yourself, okay, what, what do I propose that does not shake the stability of the system? The only thing I can think of, I mean, realistically, if someone said to me, I mean, if, if someone really did say to me as an economist, I'm also an economist, what would you do with the search business, the advertising search business? I would have to say the only option would be cloning this business, right? You'd have to clone uh, so that the search engine results page of Google would have four identical clones using the same search engine. Because basically everybody loves the search engine. They can't find a better search engine. So there's there's no way to say, hey, let's hive off, you know, 
Waymo or you know YouTube or whatever. These are very small business cloud. It's not going to do it. So then you say, how do I get a competitor for Google? The only answer is cloning them. So you'd have to get just like the shares, you know, A, A class, B class, C class. Maybe you just say, hey, look, you know, there's four, there's four alphabets with the very same search engine who basically operate some kind of a deal into a, a search engine results page that they that, that kind of randomizes and creates some kind of consistency that you can't see, but then brings down that cost per click for the advertisers. Because that's the thing here. You got, I mean, a, a net income margin of 30%. That's not an operating margin. Net income margin of 30%. This is because the clicking through on these ads is, is so, there's nothing to it. There's nothing physical to it. There's nothing that you have to do about it. It scales unbelievably. So, yeah, I, I personally, I think, you know, the creativity of thinking about uh, antitrust here is, is that only thing I can think of is cloning these businesses. All right, that's fair enough. Uh, John, just in terms of the moonshots, they run their kind of almost their own version of a venture capital company. You know, they run these moonshots. They expect, what, 20% of them to make it as well. You're quite excited about the ones that don't make money that may well be reasons to buy. Yeah, look, I mean, one of the things you got to think about is is what, what on earth are they doing in their other bets? They have 3% of this business, right? So you say Waymo. Well, well basically, Waymo is, is this huge market in autos. So that's they basically take on their bets on huge markets that are not in. And you get Fitbit. Fitbit, what is Fitbit? Well, it's basically health market, right? And then you get to Nest, and you say, Nest, why Nest? Well, that's the home. So you can see that basically – you know, if you're such a giant company, you got to bet on other giant markets, and they try to think hard on where they can position themselves in health, in home, in car. And I think that's really the answer here: is that that they're pretty shrewd here. Uh, they just don't want to miss miss out on some kind of big opportunity, and and they're willing to be patient because this ad business just throws up so much money. It's hard to imagine they they care much about what happens in three percent of the revenue. Yeah, I hear you, John. Look, thank you very much indeed for, I don't know, you're staying up late or you're getting up early for us? Which is it in LA? <laughs> I stayed up late, but uh, it's been a nice night out here. Oh, bless you. Look, thank you very much indeed. We'll speak to you again soon. Uh, I'm sure Karen and I wish we were in LA rather than uh, a cold London morning in February. Thanks, John. Uh, John Blank, who is uh, Chief Equity Strategist uh, and, of course, as you mentioned, an economist over at Zach's Investment Research. Uh, coming up on the show, Aston Martin launching what it builds as the world's fastest SUV. Uh, we'll get behind the wheel with the executive chairman, Lawrence Stroll. That's coming up next. And still to come on the show, a packed C-suite lineup you do not want to miss. The likes of Julius Baer and Novartis, as well as TeamViewer and Santander uh, will be joining us first on CNBC to break down their various numbers. Ambition to me is about doing better. I think ambition creates a pathway. The best advice I can give someone starting off a career is don't have a career, have lots of careers, try loads of different things. Talk to people and put your ambition out there. I don't feel that I've hit peak ambition because it's a learning journey. CNBC is where ambition meets opportunity. What does living ambitiously mean to you? Hear it from our CNBC anchors, reporters and global business leaders on CNBC.com. AT&T shares fell after it announced it will spin off Warner Media. 
in a $43 billion deal as part of its plans to merge its media assets with Discovery. The company also said its dividend payout would be at the lower end of its previously announced range. The telecom giant acquired Time Warner in 2018 and had planned to focus on its connectivity services. AT&T CEO told CNBC that a decision to spin off the media unit rather than split it would help avoid value leakage. AT&T shareholders will own the majority of the new company. Sony has raised its four-year guidance after the Japanese conglomerate reported a 32% jump in third-quarter operating profit, comfortably beating expectations. The group saw strong demand for its PlayStation 5 consoles, but it struggled to meet robust demand amid a shortage in chips. Right, General Motors is forecasting record full-year earnings as the global semiconductor shortage eases. That's what we've all been waiting for, isn't it? The automaker said 2022 operating profit will be between 13 and $15 billion, in line with expectations. The group reported mixed fourth-quarter results with the uh, slight miss on the top line. Now, tune in to CNBC's first on interview uh, with the CEO, Mary Barrett. That is coming up stateside just after 1500 Central European time. Luxury car maker Aston Martin is launching a new SUV build as the world's fastest in its class. I, I saw this. I think I saw it can go 193 miles an hour. The problem is, where are you allowed to drive 193 miles per hour? It's all very well being the fastest in the class, isn't it? Anyway, the British-built DBX 707 boasts a 0-60 uh, per hour. What? 0-60 per hour time of just over three seconds. Again... Bit cheeky off the lights with the police following you, that would be, wouldn't it? Anyway, uh, Rosanna spoke with Aston Martin Executive Chairman Lawrence Stroll ahead of the announcement and asked how concerned he was about global supply chain disruptions. We've been very fortunate, you know, we're, we're, we're a low volume, um, very high performance luxury company. We haven't been affected by any supply shortages. We haven't had problems with these semiconductors like our large uh, other OEMs have. And to what I understand, you're only planning to produce around 5,000 of these vehicles annually. Are you playing on the scarcity kind of value there in order to get behind the luxury consumer? Yes, that's correct. And as I've stated, since I became chairman uh, a, a little over 18 months ago, this is about being the ultra luxury, meeting high performance. This is about uh, only manufacturing vehicles to orders, whether it's a DBX 707 or any other of the products in our portfolio. So um, that's absolutely correct. And we cannot ignore the wider macroeconomic factors at play at the moment, affecting businesses everywhere. So how will wider economic factors like inflation, like currency fluctuations impact your business? Well, as we've seen in the broader luxury sector, not only automotive, but in particular automotive luxury as well, um, we've, we seem to only be going from strength to strength. Our demand is getting stronger every day. We, we've had record sales in the past year. We retailed more cars than we wholesaled, um, which shows what the consumer demand's like for our wonderful Aston Martins. So we don't see any effect as nor do the rest of the luxury sector. Thank you for listening to Squawk Box Europe Express. For more market-moving news, you can head to cnbc.com. Or join us again on the show with Jeff Cutmore, Steve Sedgwick and Karen Cho. Weekdays on CNBC.